Well, Romans 8 is a large chapter, 39 verses, and we are taking bite-sized chunks as we go through it together, but I pray that the study has been profitable to you to this point. It certainly has for my spirit. Um, we've been considering in this section from 18 and following the glory that is to be revealed to um, two groups, if you will, uh, to all creation, meaning the non-thinking, non-rational part of creation, and to the sons of God who are the rational part of creation. But even further, we are those who now have the mind of Christ who are able to think and reason with the very mind of God. This glory that is to be revealed is so immense that Paul is helping us to understand that when we consider the sufferings that we personally endure or that we endure as a body of Christ here at this local church, or if we expand that out to the saints all over the world, and not just in the time we live, but in all time from the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden until this point, this time that's marked by sin and suffering and death, All of those sufferings combined together are as nothing when you compare them with the glory that is to be revealed to us, to creation, in us as we are glorified at the last day with new bodies that are like the body of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and through us as we shine brightly like the sun in the radiance of His own splendor and glory. That's the scale of balance that the Lord wants us to keep in mind in this section. There is a great glory that He is going to reveal, and we are to keep our minds there. We are to earnestly long for that day. Two weeks ago, when we considered uh, this text, we were looking at the first two of the three groans that are identified for us in this section of Romans 8. The first was the groaning of creation, Uh, the groaning of all the non-thinking part of God's created order, longing to be delivered from the bondage of corruption that they've been placed into, that they've been uh, subjected to, um, creation being personified like a person to help us understand this idea. Uh, Not willingly, it was not something that they wanted or that the creation wanted, but it was because of man's sin that creation was subjected to this futility, this inability to achieve its purpose for which it was designed. And so it longs to be free of that curse, long to be free of the chain that holds it down so that it can become the the glorious freedom that it was meant to be. And in like manner, we who are the sons of God long for the same deliverance, don't we? We feel the weight of the load of sin in our own lives, and increasingly so as the Lord is maturing us in the faith. We feel the weight of our own sin, and we just long to be free from it. And so that propels us, it drives us to to set our minds on things above and, and on this glorious future that the Lord has planned for all of us, that He will create a, a, a new earth and a new heavens as we looked at, And all of the people of God of all time will dwell in that new earth under the new heavens forever. A place where only righteousness dwells from one end of the earth to the other. Last week, we spent some time looking at the hope 
that we have and what this hope is in biblical categories. And, and that was verses 24 and 25. A hope that is uh, rooted in the very Word of God. A hope that is a, a solid expectation of what we know what is going to happen, which is this glory is going to be revealed because God Himself has promised it. Christ Himself has secured it through His redemption, redemptive work at the cross and through God raising Him from the dead to show all of us, to witness to everyone that death no longer has a claim on us. God's justice has been satisfied in Jesus Christ for all who put their trust squarely in Him. And because of that, not only are our souls redeemed now, but our bodies will be redeemed later. We will have a complete salvation, body and soul. This week, we are coming back to the third groan, which is listed in the text here. And we're going to see that in verses 26 and 27. And the questions that we want to ask about this groan are the following. What is this groan exactly? Who is the person who is groaning? What's the nature of the groaning? What does it look like or sound like? And what does this groaning do? Does it have an effect? Those are the things that we want to consider together. And so I've just put that into an outline for us to help guide us as we go. The first would be the the reason for the groan. What is the reason for the groan? That actually comes first before we learn about the source of the groan in the text. So we'll start with the reason for the groan. Next, the source of the groan. Third, the nature of the groan. And then next week, we will uh, get to the effectiveness of the groan in verse 27. So let's look together first at the reason for the groan. Verse 26 reads like this, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Likewise, or in the same way, the Spirit helps our weaknesses. In the same way as what? Well, in the same way that creation groans, And the sons of God groan. That's the context as we all look forward to this final deliverance. In the same way, the Spirit of God also groans because He wants us to be glorified. So He, the Holy Spirit, is devoted to helping our weaknesses. Some of the translations put weakness in the singular. It's actually plural. It's weaknesses. Many weaknesses. And when Paul uses the, the word helps, it's, it's important to understand what's behind that word. It's more than just a first passing understanding of how we understand help. He uses a Greek word which is a compound word there, as he often does. This one is the main verb and it has two prefixes attached to it, which is it's large. The main word is to take hold of, to grasp or to lay hold of something. And then he includes the prefix sin, S-Y-N, which means together with. And then he also attaches the prefix anti, A-N-T-I, or anti, which means over against. So you put this all together, and it means to take hold of something together with someone else over against each other. And the visual might be something like two people who are lifting up a table or something heavy to 
carry it and walk together because the load is too much for one. This is the word that he uses to describe how the Spirit helps our weaknesses. Um, You may remember the account of Jesus entering the home of Martha and Mary in Luke chapter 10. He enters the house and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet listening to Him speak. She's chosen the good part, as Jesus says. But Martha is encumbered by much serving. The text reads in Luke 10, verse 40, but Martha was distracted or really dizzy about how much serving she was doing. And she approached Him and said, Lord... Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Same word, same compound Greek word. Tell her to take up the load together with me so that I don't have to bear the burden alone of serving. It's too much for one person. The Holy Spirit is helping, Paul says, in a way like that with our weaknesses. And what are these weaknesses? Well, Paul doesn't identify a particular weakness. As I said, he uses the the plural there. He refers to multiple weaknesses. In other words, any and all weaknesses that we have. It's related to all weaknesses of the flesh, of these bodies of ours that have been um, tainted, corrupted by sin. It's the strong cravings of the flesh to serve sin that encompass the weakness of the flesh. You remember that Paul, when he described what life was like for him and for all of us when we were still in the flesh, meaning before we were saved, when we were dominated and controlled by this realm of the flesh, he says this in Romans 7 verse 5, for when we were in the flesh, past tense, The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. He's saying it's like when the law came to us and told us what we should do and what we should not do, actually sin within us just wanted to disabuse the law. It wanted to set it aside and to do exactly what the law said not to do, to do the exact opposite. Our passions, our sinful passions were only aroused within us because of the law interacting with our sin and our sin's proclivity for disobedience, to work all kinds of disobedience, what he calls fruit to death in the members of our body, the various expressions that we have as we live. That's how we were before. And Paul, though he was full of sin, didn't have a pricking conviction of sin in his conscience. That what he was doing, which he identifies in Romans 7 as coveting, was actually a high offense against God. He didn't even know that an attitude of the heart could be constituted as a sin against God, as a breaking of God's commands. But he came to learn through the ministry of the Spirit that he was constantly covetous and that he was a rebel against the Lord whom he thought he was serving. You see, before we're saved, we're not aware of the weakness of our flesh like we are after we've been born again, right? 
The Spirit of God opens our eyes to see that our sin that we are so stained with is a factory for committing grievous treachery against a holy God. And we become pricked in our consciences to know that what we are doing, God hates. And we hate it too. It bothers us for the first time. Paul said, apart from the law, sin was dead. Sin was not really active in me in a way that bothered me. It was latent. But what happened? He says in chapter 7, verse 9, I was alive once without the law or apart from the law, apart from the law coming in its power to me. But when the command came, sin sprang to life and I died. He was killed. He was slain. He was murdered by his own sinfulness as he saw that he constantly broke the law and it bothered him. And so then the testimony that Paul has from then on in chapter 7 is he is speaking as a regenerated man who knows that he has two parts within himself. He has a regenerated new nature, which is the the inner man, the, the new man who loves the Lord, who delights in the law of God according to that inward man, but that he's sold under sin in his flesh. His body is full of corruption. His body is is a dead body that's really strapped to his back and he longs to be rid of it. He cries, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So that's the ministry of the Spirit. He brings to us an awareness, a conviction of our sinfulness and he he shows us our weaknesses, that they are many. That we are surrounded by enemies both within in our flesh and without in the world, in the devil who both ally themselves and, 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 and work together with the weakness of our flesh in order to tempt us to disobey our Lord. So we are now aware of the weaknesses of our flesh. And it's these weaknesses, brothers and sisters, that constantly threaten our faith. These weaknesses are such that they would have us revert to giving in to the lust of the flesh and and really to losing our salvation altogether, to abandoning the faith. That's how serious these weaknesses are. They're not just latent weaknesses, they're active weaknesses that are working against us. But the Spirit of God is doing a work of grace in our hearts, isn't He? He's birthed us again from above, a new birth with a new heart, a new set of desires so that now we're recognizing what's going on for the first time and we really can't believe that we would continue to do the things that we hate now and not do the things that we really want to do. That's the testimony of the Christian. We don't want to sin anymore, do we? Our desire in the deep recesses of our hearts is to be clean. We want to do what's right in the sight of the Lord. We want to please Him. We weren't like that before the Spirit did His gracious work in our hearts. So these are the weaknesses that Paul says the Spirit helps with. And he's going to give us an illustration that shows the problem, the the apex, the, the, the thing where you can see our weaknesses most clearly. And here's what he says in Romans 8, 26. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. That is the area above all areas where we can see our weakness 
in starkest contrast. Most clearly, we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. This, brothers and sisters, is the reason for the groans. This is why the Spirit needs to help us. And this is really remarkable when you consider that this is coming from the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, this is coming from uh, a man who's written Scripture, who's written some amazing prayers within Scripture. And notice here, he includes himself. He uses the pronoun we. He says, we do not know how to pray as we ought. He says, the Spirit helps in our weaknesses. It's not just... Uh, you younger Christians, you don't know how to pray, so let me teach you how to pray. No. It's none of us knows how to pray as we ought. From the newest babe in Christ to the most seasoned, mature Christian in the faith. How can Paul say this? Well, Paul recognized this fundamental weakness or the fundamental weaknesses due to sin in his flesh, in his body. He says, we do not know, we don't perceive what we should pray for as we ought. We just don't see it. As is right and proper to pray, we don't do that. We don't even see it. And the question is why? Why don't we know what we should pray for? And the key to understanding this text is to see that this statement is linked to a statement that he gives in the next verse, in verse 27 where he says that it is the Spirit who is interceding for us, notice this, according to the will of God. According to the will of God. So that's the context of not knowing what to pray for. We don't know how to pray according to the will of God. Someone might raise an objection and say, well, doesn't the Scripture teach us what to pray according to the will of God? Well, we have to understand that the Scripture speaks of the will of God really in two categories, and there are theologians who break it up into even more than two, but I think two is most helpful to understand what is going on here. And it's really synthesized well for us in one verse. That's Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things which are revealed are for us and for our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. You have the secret will of God, and you have the revealed will of God. The secret, uh, excuse me, the things that are revealed are the things that He's given us in the Scripture to know. It's also called his preceptive will. In other words, it relates to his precepts, his commandments, the things he's told us that please him and that displease him. Those things he has made known to us. Things like, and these are examples of what we know to be the will of God, the clear things that are given in Scripture. We know that it is God's will that his people be reconciled to himself. We know it is his will that we be turning away from sin constantly, repenting. We know that it is, will that it is His will that we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation, for righteousness. We know it is His will that we be Spirit-filled on a daily basis as we set our minds on things above, on His Word. We know it's His will that we be submissive to Him and to one another, that we be uh, suffering with Christ, that we be praying without ceasing, 
that we be bearing the burdens of each other, that we be serving in the body, and it goes on. These are all known as the revealed will of God. And so we should pray for those things. And the more we pray for those things, the more powerful and effective we become as praying people. Because now we're praying what we know God has revealed to be His will. So will He answer those things? Of course He will. So you will become an effective praying believer as you align yourself more and more with what the Spirit through the Word has revealed God's will is. But then there's the secret things, the hidden will of God. And those are the things which relate to what's called His decretive will. You could think of this as what happens behind the curtain, so to speak, in the counsel of God that determines really everything that comes to pass. Everything that comes to pass has been decreed by Him by the force of His sovereignty. That means that every event in history, every person's birth and and life and date of death is all marked out ahead of time. Every deed that is done, even every thought that is uh, thought and, and intimated in the heart of a person, God sees all and He knows all even before we think it or say it. Of course, not everything that God ordains in His hidden will is pleasing to Him. There's a distinction that's made there. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, but He still decrees their punishment because He's a just judge. He's never the author of sin. He hates the evil that he allows and ordains, but he always ordains it in order to overcome it and to achieve good that does please him. So, this is the hidden counsel of God. So, why do we not know? Why is it that we can't see or perceive what to pray for? Well, we can see the revealed will of God. We may not know all the revealed will of God. That's part of just growing in the faith. But the question is, can we see it? Can we perceive it? Yes, it's been given to us here. But what about the hidden will of God? That you cannot see. That you cannot perceive. That you shouldn't even try to peer into because that's not our business. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that's been reserved for the Lord alone. So why don't we know what to pray for as we ought? Well, we have a huge gap in our vision, which is related to the hidden decrees of God. These are the things that you can only see and know were the will of God in retrospect, in hindsight. But I just want to give you a few few things to consider here as we think about why this is such a difficulty for us that we don't know how to pray for what we ought to pray for. The first is that we don't even really understand our present circumstances. What is going on in us and around us right now? I mean, how, mu- how many of us really understand everything that's going on? Um, we may know the general content of what we should pray, right? We know the revealed will of God, and so we pray those things. But what we are to pray when a particular trial or a trouble arises, now that's the difficulty. That's the trouble. How do we pray in those circumstances? Should we pray for relief to get out of a vexing situation? Or should we pray that we stay in it for a period of time? What if the Lord wants to keep us in that difficulty for a time to teach us dependence on Him? 
total trust in Him and to stop trusting in ourselves. Paul, uh, you remember um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he um, prayed a specific prayer for relief for this thorn in the flesh that was given to him. And no one knows exactly what this thorn in the flesh was. Um, It may have been a a false teacher or a group of false teachers um, who were uh, slandering him, who were undermining his apostolic authority. Um, Whatever it was, we know that he prayed three times that this thing might depart from him. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Weakness. So, uh, Paul says, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then he says something that's really bewildering for most people. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. And why do you do that, Paul? For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, Paul had a spiritual, Christ-centered, heavenly perspective on every circumstance of life. The Lord brought him to that point just like he's bringing us to that point. Paul prayed, Lord, give me relief from this thing. It's vexing me. And it wasn't just one time, but three times he asked the Lord. And the Lord's answer is, was no. No, I have a purpose for this. Paul said, lest I should be exalted above measure. Why? Because the Lord gave him revelations of heaven itself. He was caught up to the third heaven. He saw something of heaven and glory. And lest he should be um, boasted, boasting, proud, puffed up in his mind with all the experiences he's had, God humbles him with these, this thorn in the flesh. And he says, I, I, I will to have it so, because it's there that my strength, the Lord speaking, is perfected in your weakness. So that's why Paul and we could say, okay, Lord, I embrace the weaknesses I have. Help me. Help me to trust you through whatever the circumstance is. May you be glorified. So, did Paul, who was a mature apostle, know what to pray in a given moment about his present circumstances? No. He pleaded three times that the thing would be removed. He didn't know. But the Lord showed him there was a purpose for this. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul is writing from prison. We just finished a wonderful study in the book of Philippians with Pastor Stan in our Sunday school hour. Paul is writing from prison, and look what he says in chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Paul says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Um, He knew that he would be delivered from prison. The question is, how? Through death? Or would the Lord actually free him from the bars and the chains? He says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life 
or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So here's a perplexity that Paul had. Um, Should I stay in this body and minister to the saints, or should I go and be with the Lord, which is really far better, and that's what I want. I I actually don't know what to do. Paul was perplexed. He was in straits, is the idea. He was being squeezed for the decision. He didn't know what to do. So, we don't always know what to pray for as we ought. In fact, we, we never know what to pray for as we ought with regard to the hidden will of God in a present circumstance. We don't know, here's another thing to think about, when the devil or his demons are near us. I mean, do we have that kind of vision, visibility? We don't know when the enemy is going to start yammering in our ear. We can pray, as the Lord taught us to pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Lord, keep me from the assaults of the evil one. But what if you're a Job and the Lord wants to allow the devil to assault you for a time in order to demonstrate to him and to all who watch that God can put the highest of his creatures who has fallen, the strongest, the mightiest of his creatures, Satan, to an open shame by displaying his grace and power in the weakness of a a person like us. What if God wants to do that? How do we pray? You see the point. It's we don't even know what our present circumstances are. So how do we pray for them? What about this fact? We also can't see the future or the end. We, we can't even see in front of us at all. We don't know how to pray for ourselves or for others in any given circumstance because we don't know what God has planned for us in the particulars or for others. See, you have to know the end in order to know how all the puzzle pieces fit together in order to make that completion, uh, to bring you to that completed desire, that desirable place. And so it doesn't matter how mature you are as a believer, you'll never have that visibility into the future like God has. That's why Paul includes himself in these weaknesses. Another thing to think about is how often in our times of trial, Um, Our judgment, our ability to think becomes clouded, right? Because we feel overwhelmed. Is it easy to think clearly when you feel all the pressure upon you? It's not. It's difficult. We don't know how to pray for as we ought because we don't have clarity of mind at all times. And let's be honest. Given the choice, how many of us would choose to pray for suffering and trial and trouble We would always pray to be free of those things, to be healthy and to be living what we believe is the right life. How many blind spots and pitfalls do we have in the Christian life, brothers and sisters? Troubles within, troubles without. 
we don't know how to pray for as we ought to keep our faith going. And honestly, if it were up to us, we would lose hope. We'd lose faith, the faith. There's a line from a song that we sang last week, He will hold me fast, which is so good. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold, He must hold me fast. That's right. Um, Our love wavers. Sometimes we're warm, sometimes we're cold. The Lord is constant. He alone is constant. So you might hear all this in terms of difficulties in not knowing what to pray, and you might say, well, why pray at all? I mean, if we don't know what to pray for as we ought, what's the purpose of praying? The answer to that is simple. Those who pray must pray because they show that they're alive. The Spirit of God has given every son of God a new supernatural impulse to pray. That's what we saw in Romans 8.15, where we cry out, literally we shriek. That's the kind of cry that's in view here. Daddy, Abba, Father, help. That's uh, a new impulse that only the sons of God have. So, a Christian who doesn't pray is not a Christian. It's like saying a person can be alive who doesn't breathe. No. To pray is to breathe out to God, to call upon Him because we know that He is our Father and we love Him. So, we know that we need to pray. (laughs) The impulse is there to pray. Sometimes the prayer is just very short and, and simple. It's just help or daddy And we can't even articulate what it is that's deep in our hearts as the longing that we we want, the groaning. We know we need to pray, but we don't know how to pray as we ought. And that is the reason for this third groan. And here's what the Spirit does to help us. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. This now is the second point in the outline. This is the source of the groan. The source of the groan. And believe it or not, as simple as that reads, the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings. As simple as that reads, there is a debate. There has been a debate for years among Christians and commentators about who exactly is groaning here. And the argument is, well, the question is this. Is God the Holy Spirit pleading directly to the Godhead for us with words, uh, without words, is he somehow just speaking directly to God? Or is it that he's moving our hearts to teach us to pray, to call upon the Lord? And the argument runs, well, <clears throat> if you look at Romans 8.15, and you see that uh, you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, Even though Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit is crying Abba, it can't mean that the Holy Spirit is crying Abba because the Holy Spirit wouldn't say Daddy to God the Father. That's not the relationship between the Holy Spirit and the Father. Therefore, uh, that cry can't be the Holy Spirit's cry ultimately. It would have to be the cry of the sons of God. And so they apply that logic and they they bring it over to Romans 8.26 and they say, well, the groanings are actually not the Holy Spirit's groanings, but the children's groanings. And even 
a man that I respect highly and lean on for a lot of biblical interpretation, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, took a different position on this. He, he took that position that this is not the cry of the Holy Spirit, but it's the cry of the children. It's actually the children's groans, again, that he's talking about. And I respectfully have to disagree with that, and I'm going to tell you why. This is how I arrived at this. If you just look at the context, in verse 22 of Romans 8, it speaks about the creation groaning. In verse 23, Paul says, we also who have the first fruits groan. That's clearly talking about another group. That's the sons of God, those who are born again and have the first fruits, the Spirit of God, in our hearts. In verse 26, he now says, likewise, the Spirit also, also helps in our weaknesses. And in, in, in other words, in addition to the foregoing, both the creation groaning and the sons of God groaning, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. So, the context alone would tell you that this is a third groan. This is not back to groan number two again. The other thing that Paul does here, I think, to strengthen uh, the understanding that he's speaking about the Spirit himself groaning is just that. He uses what's called a reflexive pronoun. He says in 826, but the Spirit himself, aftos, himself. In other words, it's not us who are groaning here. It's his groan as distinct from our groans. And then a third thing is if you just go to verse 27, look what he says. And he who searches the hearts, and we're going to get to this more next week, but just to give you a preview on this, this is the Lord and specifically the Father who searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is. It doesn't say the mind of the children but the mind of the Spirit. So clearly it's the Spirit who's doing the groaning. It's the Father who hears and understands the groans of the Spirit. And brothers and sisters, this is, this is a particular aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that I think is maybe just not understood or misunderstood a lot of times. And so we want to make sure that we understand this because this is an opportunity for us to give glory to God and God the Holy Spirit specifically in this particular ministry. So the source of the groan is the Holy Spirit is what I'm arguing. The third point is the nature of the groan. What does this actually look like in practice? And here's what he says. The Spirit makes intercession. He uses a, a compound word there, which means to meet with another person for the purpose of consulting with them, uh, petitioning them or pleading with them. So that would be the intercessory work described. And then he uh, adds a prefix, which is the prefix hyper in Greek or hyper in English, which means super in order to strengthen the verb. So what he's saying is the Spirit abundantly intercedes. He abundantly intercedes for us. So that tells you something about the, intent, the, um, the expression of this, how intense it is, with groanings. Now, this is the same word that Paul has been using all along in eight, chapter 8, verse 22 and verse 23. It's the word that means to sigh. And as you might recall from a couple of weeks ago, the groan in Scripture is used in three senses. It's used to describe an expression of grief or sorrow. It's used to describe displeasure over sin. And it's used to describe 
um, a longing to be free of something, a longing for resolution. And that's exactly what we see the Scripture describe the Spirit doing. He groans, He grieves. Ephesians 4 verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We can grieve the Spirit of God. Before the flood in Genesis chapter 6, the Lord made this proclamation, My spirit shall not always strive with man. And he said in chapter 6 verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Grieved because of sin. Because of how sin had corrupted the human race who were created to glorify him. him. And then concerning Israel, as they um, wandered those 40 years in the wilderness, in Psalm 95 it says, For 40 years I was grieved with that generation. And said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. The Lord is grieved because of sin. So now we think about the Holy Spirit who is God, the Spirit, fully God, dwelling in our hearts, surrounded by a body of flesh. He has purified our hearts by His Word, by faith in His Word. But he's surrounded by our sinful flesh, and so he can easily be grieved over our sin. He hates our sin, and he longs for us to be delivered, for us to be glorified. He groans for that. So he groans with groanings which the text says cannot be uttered. It's also translated too deep for words. And I just have to call out that there has been a very bad misinterpretation of this verse Um, This second half of verse 26 has been misused by those, I would say, particularly in the Pentecostal and charismatic movements who say that this verse describes something about speaking in tongues with some kind of a language that they would say is too deep for words. And, And they're trying to use this verse to bolster a position that they can speak with a, an angelic or a heavenly language, which to those who listen sounds like gibberish. Uh, brothers and sisters, this verse has nothing to do with human experience. That's actually how Dr. John MacArthur put it, and I thought that was really helpful. This verse has nothing to do with human experience. Paul is speaking of something far more profound than somebody grunting or speaking gibberish in a time of prayer. He says, cannot be uttered, which literally means not able to be spoken not able to be sounded out at all by any human. So that kind of eliminates that whole notion that you are somehow praying in the Spirit by speaking gibberish. No, what Paul is saying here is he's speaking of inter-Trinitarian conversation between the Holy Spirit residing in our hearts and God the Father in heaven. The Spirit of God is groaning in a, a language that we can't hear or understand, but it's perfectly communicated between God the Spirit and God the Father. The Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. 
And this second half of verse 26 really answers the question that we looked at earlier, which is how is the Holy Spirit helping our weakness in prayer? How is he actually helping? How is he? Go back to this illustration of two people lifting up the heavy table together. Well, the Spirit is bearing up the heavy end. He, he takes our weakness, weaknesses, and particularly our weakness in the area of praying, not knowing what we should pray for as we ought, and he repackages our prayers so that our prayers are what they ought to be, and then he sends them up. And you say, how do you know that? It doesn't say that he repackages our prayers. No, but look at verse 27. He constantly, this is the Spirit now, he constantly intercedes according to the will of God. Do we always pray according to the will of God? No. But the Spirit in our hearts always prays according to the will of God. And so every prayer that goes up to the Father has been repackaged by the Spirit of God so that what was not the will of God is the will of God. The Holy Spirit ensures that God does not answer the prayers that we pray that are not in line with His will. That is a blessing. Can you think of what would happen, what would have happened if God had answered all the prayers you had prayed in life that you were so glad He did not answer now that you're looking back in retrospect? Thank the Holy Spirit for that grace. Thank the Father for that grace. Thank the Son for that grace. It's the grace of God. So, the Holy Spirit is ministering to us in this way, and it's when we are trying to pray. We are trying to form prayers. They're not the will of God necessarily, so He makes them such and then sends them to the Father. What about when we're not praying? What about when we're not praying? I mean, which of us prays constantly? Uh, When you're not awake, let's say. What about when you're sleeping? Let me give you an example here from the Scripture that I think is helpful. Satan, Jesus said at one point to Peter that Satan desired to sift him like wheat. You remember that? This is in Luke 22, verse 31. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Um, He wants to destroy you, Simon. He wants to shake you out and bring you down to the ground. But the Lord Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. There's boisterous Peter thinking that he could do it in his own strength, that he doesn't need the Lord's prayer. So Peter, is he prayerful at that moment? No. Jesus then tells him, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows this day. You think that you're strong and are standing on your own? I'm going to demonstrate to you an utter failure. You're going to deny me, even to a a young servant girl, which would be a shame. So the Lord prays for Peter, for Simon. And it's because the Lord prays for Peter that his faith does not fail. 
In fact, he promises in that prayer, when you have returned to me. Was Peter restored to the Lord? Yes. The Lord restored Peter after his resurrection. And he said, strengthen your brethren. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Take care of my flock. That's because the Lord prayed for a saint who was not praying for himself. And so it is with the Holy Spirit and all the people of God. The Lord, the Holy Spirit must pray for His people or else their faith will fail. There is a wonderful passage that we often quote in 1 Peter chapter 1 that speaks about the glorious inheritance that the Lord has reserved for us in heaven. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, you who are kept, guarded, protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. There's the principle. God is keeping all His people through faith. He's the one who sustains your faith, right? We say that often. It's the Lord who causes us to persevere to the end. What we're talking about back here in Romans 8, 26 and 27, you could think of as the mechanics of what's going on behind the scene in order to sustain our faith. It's the prayer of the Holy Spirit for us. Praying according to the will of God so that our prayers are heard and answered and given us as God desires. This is what's happening behind the scenes, so to speak, that he, the Lord is gloriously giving us uh, some glimpse into in this eighth chapter of Romans. And this prayer for His people is something He does constantly. Constantly. And this is something that really hit me as I was studying this week in a profound way. When Paul says that the Spirit helps and that he makes intercession, he is using the present active tenses for both. In other words, he's continuously without ceasing praying for us. Is it any wonder that the Scripture says pray without ceasing to us now? If we are in union with the Lord, with Christ, we are to do what he does. He prays for us without ceasing. We are to pray without ceasing as much as is possible. In other words, there is never a time when God, the Holy Spirit, is not praying for us to God. Is that not an amazing thought? Did, did you know that one member of the Trinity is engaged in service for you literally around the clock through this ministry of intercession? And that includes, like I said a moment ago, when we're sleeping. He holds us fast even in our sleep. He prays for us then. What about if we become diminished in our mental capabilities through age or through illness? Brothers and sisters, He prays for us then. What if we should lose our mental capacity altogether at some point? Let's say that we are in the hospital in a coma. He prays for us then. All of these are our weaknesses, and yet the Lord overcomes them all by His strength. He sustains us. He holds us. He prays for us. And why does He do it? 
because the Holy Spirit groans for our glory. Because He loves us. He will not allow us to fall away. He is causing us to persevere to the end. The Lord has made every provision for our salvation, hasn't He? He's regenerated us. He's given us the gift of faith to believe the Word of God. He has justified us by His grace through faith in His Son, the Righteous One. So now we have perfect righteous standing with God. He is sanctifying us. That is, He is making us more holy in practice. And this is one aspect of His sanctification that we need to be aware of. He prays for us constantly to ensure that we will be glorified. But this intercessory work goes even a step further than the Holy Spirit praying for us. Look just a few verses ahead in Romans chapter 8 to verse 34. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So we not only have one priest praying for us, but two priests praying for us at all times. The Holy Spirit praying from our hearts here on the earth. Jesus Christ, the risen, glorified Lord, praying for us constantly from heaven. You not only have one member of the Godhead, but two members of the Godhead who are constantly engaged in your favor, to your benefit, so that you would not fail in your faith. Hebrews 7, verse 25 is another verse that we read this morning in our call to worship. Speaking of Jesus and His intercessory work from heaven, therefore He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. He is unlike every other priest because He doesn't die. He lives forever, so therefore He is able to continually intercede without an interruption, the interruption being death, the death of the priest. Christ ever lives to make intercession for His people throughout time. He is our advocate, literally our lawyer with the Father, and His name is Jesus Christ the righteous. So whenever uh, an accusation would come up against us because we sin in practice, Christ is right there to defend us. I died for Him. I died for her. All their sins are pardoned, Father. Wonderful ministry of intercession on our behalf. Hmm. Um, I want to just give you a brief illustration and wrap up. This illustration is from Pilgrim's Progress. And this is a description of a room that interpreter brought Christian into, Christian being the main character, the pilgrim. And the interpreter represents the Holy Spirit. And he brings Christian into a room and shows him something against a wall. Listen to how this is described by John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress. Then I saw in my dream that the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a room where there was a fireplace. The flames from the fireplace grew larger and hotter even though there was someone continually throwing water on it to try to quench it. Then said Christian, what does this mean? The interpreter answered, 
The fire is the work of grace that God accomplishes in the heart. He who throws water on the flames to try to extinguish it is the devil. But as you see, the fire burns higher and hotter despite his efforts to put it out. Now let me show you the reason for that. So the interpreter took Christian to the other side of the wall where he saw a man with a vessel of oil in his hand from which he secretly funneled oil into the fire. Then Christian asked, what does this mean? The interpreter answered, this is Christ who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart. No matter what the devil tries to do, no matter what the devil tries to do, the gracious work that Christ is doing in the souls of his people only increases. You saw that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire. That is to teach you that it is hard for the one being tempted to see how this work of grace is maintained in the soul. Isn't that wonderful? Brothers and sisters, I'm trying to take you behind the wall this morning to show you what's happening to counteract the effect of all of our weaknesses. Specifically in prayer, the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven and the Spirit of Christ from our hearts on earth, they pray for us constantly. They're pouring on the oil of grace to keep us believing, to warm our hearts toward the Lord and toward what is right, to live a life that would please Him. No matter what assaults the devil, this world system, and our own flesh are trying to level at us constantly. His oil of grace is going to make that fire continue to burn and burn hotter and hotter no matter what if you belong to Him. That is good news. Do you think God is concerned about your perseverance, brother and sister? Do you think He's concerned about bringing you all the way to glory through all all of life's vicissitudes and turmoils and troubles that he himself ordains? You bet. He's fully engaged in that enterprise. He's proactively praying for you, and he's hearing your prayers because the Spirit is packaging what we pray amiss into exactly what is the will of God, and God hears and answers that. We don't have time to get into verse 27 today, but the, the fourth piece of this um, puzzle, if you will. The fourth piece is really how effective is what the Spirit is doing. It's incredibly effective because God agrees with God always. What the Spirit says, the Father stamps and approves. What the Son prays, the Father stamps and approves. They're all, they're all engaged to work for us. Father, Son, and Spirit. The great love of God. So, here's the model. The Spirit is training us to pray, training us to pray, to pray His revealed will more and more. That's what we're learning as we learn the Scriptures. But we also are rejoicing because we recognize in the area where we don't have visibility, namely the hidden will of God, He is constantly interceding for us, both the Spirit and Jesus Christ. There's a lyric in the song we're going to close with, which is called, Jesus I my cross have taken. And the lyric says this, Think what spirit dwells within thee. Consider him. 
Think what Father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine? What can you say in response to all of that except, thank you, Lord, I praise you. Without you, I would have zero hope. But with you, I have all the hope in the world. Loved ones, no matter how weak you may feel this morning or this, in this week that's coming up, God is accomplishing His will in your life through His prayers for you and through the prayers of His Son from heaven. Praise Him. Thank Him. Know that nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ. You are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And that is where we are going. And that's where Romans 8 comes to a climax. If we understand all of the ministry of the Spirit as He's laid it out for us in Romans 8, the only possible conclusion is nothing can stop us from glory. And that changes the way we live. Let's pray. Father, now we ask that You would take Your Word not mine, and apply it to the hearts of your people so that they would glory in you, our great God and Savior, so that we all would praise your name and live lives that bring you great praise, that speak to the power of your grace in our hearts to transform us, to um, help us in every area of our weakness, especially in the area of prayer, Father, thank you that you see all things. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You see the end from the beginning. And all the pieces in between you have purposed and joined together. Father, we are simply recognizing that you are God. And we are agreeing with you that you are God. And we are loving the fact that you are God. A God who has shown us tremendous favor that we don't deserve. Lord, thank you for sending your Son to die in our place. Thank you for the gospel, the good news that all our sins, no matter how bad they are, no matter when we committed them and even the ones we have yet to commit, all of them can be forgiven freely, pardoned completely by you as we come to you in faith, trusting in Jesus that his work on the cross was enough for us. His resurrection is the reason we live spiritually now, and will at the last day be raised bodily. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.